0: Hi, this is the Tempter Podcast, where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development, and anything else we find interesting. Your hosts are Kem Raj and Cliff Brake. Uh, Today, we're going to discuss application development in the context of embedded Linux and some of the the things we've learned over, over the years, preferences we've come to, and also the different types of applications you might write, so... Anyway, to get started, Kim, why don't we, maybe you could just share some thoughts on applications in in the context of an embedded system.
1: All right. Hi, Cliff. Um, applications in embedded Linux is an interesting topic, and I think um, it's uh, important to uh, make a difference between, say, embedded Linux system or a desktop system or a server system. And in general, there are different types of applications that you deploy the systems, so predominantly you will find uh, there are real time systems in which are having deterministic latency needs and uh, you got standalone systems which are not connected to other systems uh, via some networking or other ways to connect and then you got connected systems which is most of these these days uh, you know you got iot systems and so they uh, connect with each other or to a backend Of course, you know, the largest part is the mobile development and um, predominantly these are types of embedded systems and the design of applications on this go hand in hand with which type of embedded space you are targeting. So I think what we um, uh, know about them is many of the common pieces there. Of course, you got, you know, a uh, abstractions on top of um, various middlewares or operating systems. So, that's my take on what a application would look like. So I know that typically people are exposed to their desktops and servers, and so they have a a view of what a system should look like. So, um, what do you see embedded system look like from its anatomy perspective? When you see a point of sale equipment running or a uh, a farming device that is you know mounted on a uh, a tractor running, so. How would you kind of divide that from a software perspective that you could see that how, what is running on this uh, particular device?
0: Yeah, that, um, maybe to back up a little bit, sometimes, you know, I, I don't have a technical definition as to what is an embedded system, but typically in the context of my work, it's it's just more of a computer system that does uh, one specific task, whether it's collecting data or it's instrumenting equipment connected to an agricultural tractor or uh, a, n- a number of other things, so that kind of differentiates, at least in my experience, kind of what an embedded system is from from like a desktop computer or a general-purpose server.
1: That's well said, actually.
0: And I guess one other thing we may want to back up and discuss is when do you use when do you use Linux in an embedded system versus like an RTOS or, or something else Mm -hmm. because that's a critical decision point. Yes. And um, something, something you need to ask the question.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think um, perhaps my view, for example, in there is based upon the application that you have, say, if you were to do sensor, right, that is doing one task and it has to live in a, unmonitored location right and has basically battery requirements and has to live in remote locations um maybe that would be something that you know you would basically go and design with a very minimal compute and therefore minimal software because you know it's doing something minimalistic and then uh, not doing a lot of processing but then it will be many of them that are out there so the scale kicks in and you know so it also fits into your pricing model at that point and you might want to install it in you know constrained locations where the real estate might be an issue where you want to put it so you might want to go with more uh, smaller designs and then obviously you know software accompanying it will be small too and then you might not have a very rich set of operating system primitives that you might want to use but you might go with something like a RTOS or maybe even a simple bare metal app but then if you have more or less a connected device that does processing or maybe uh, some some data serialization data management then obviously you know you go with more like a single board computer kind of design or maybe a system on module kind of design and have full operating system perhaps embedded linux or others and then have your uh, stack application stack on top so that's my take on it. So what's your take?
0: Yeah, that, that's uh, just thinking back to some of my experiences. I, re- I remember years back we were working with a customer. They were designing a, a terminal, a touchscreen terminal that would be used inside of a, a tractor to instrument some equipment they were pulling behind it. And we, we were talking about screen sizes and eventually they kind of settled on a, a VGA. A mm-hmm. uh, 640 by 480 VGA touchscreen display. And, you know, they were originally planning to drive this thing with a PIC microcontroller because that's mm-hmm. that's what they were used to. That's They used PICs in all their products and they work great. Mm-hmm. But when we started looking at the bandwidth requirements, e- even a modest VGA display, un- unless you have a LCD controller, and a good bit of memory. There's just no way to do it with a pick, at least a low-end pick. Maybe the newer ones would do it. Right. So coming from a Linux, an embedded Linux background, you know, it was obvious to me that we use something like a an ARM processor that has, you know, that runs Linux and has a LCD controller built into it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that, that that's just one example. If you have a reasonably large touchscreen display that you need to display. Quite a bit of data on, then then that kind of pushes you towards embedded Linux right. class right. system. And then, like you mentioned, any time you're you're handling, uh, say, more than a couple sensor values, you know, say you have a, a system that's expandable to a number of sensor nodes, or that's collecting a lot of data at a fast pace and needs to manage that, so that's another case that calls for Linux. And then the, the third class of device is what you already mentioned, is a connected device where you need connectivity to the internet, and that's your typical IoT scenario, you know, where you have a system collecting data and then sending it, sending it to a server using a cellular modem or Wi-Fi or, or or whatever. So those are kind of the three classes of devices that I I think really mm-hmm. are served well by embedded Linux. The, the large display uh, handling lots of data and then Mm -hmm. connectivity. So those are kind of the three general categories that I see.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, well put. I think, um, you know, largely you could classify those into these uh, categories. And then obviously, you know, as you mentioned, there are more um, constrained systems that you could go down where Linux probably wouldn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you might want to go with either a real-time operating system or just a bare metal app that you might want to run uh, on those devices. And, you know, there are a few RTOS options out there um, that will fit into those. I mean, a typical example could be a, a smart bulb or something. You know, all it will have to do probably is, you know, a few operations like turn on, turn off, maybe change colors or what have you, few other op- operations. So you really don't want to put like, you know, embedded Linux on that, control those bulbs. So mm-hmm. essentially that. I think my take on the fourth category that you will not want to do embedded, embed, embedded Linux on. So I think um, once like you have your uh, kind of system ready, there is another aspect of it. And I think uh, that's around programming languages. And in many cases, people are very vested into languages and I've seen in my career wars fought between, you know, various languages. Yeah, that's... uh... (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and maybe there is a reason for that. And, you know, it's always good to be passionate about things, and I really appreciate that. I came from a compiler background and operating system backgrounds, initially doing compilers. And one thing I learned early on is that all these languages are like tools in your toolbox if you were a plumber or something. And better to know which tool to use where rather than take one tool and try to use it everywhere. And uh, this was a learning I always carried on with me, you know, so I was primarily working on CC++ compilers, but then having that perspective made me adopt various other language paradigms. So um, so I think in um, this context, what's your take on you know, the languages for embedded programming uh, in, in general? So leaving aside, you have the system, which is the embedded Linux system and it will have components that are already programmed and written in specific languages. So it may be a combination of those language runtimes that your embedded system may have, uh, but in particular, when you are designing your embedded Linux application, what are your um, thoughts on you know, various uh, languages from that aspect?
0: Yeah, maybe we could just go down through a list here. And, and I guess I'd probably start with C. That's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the oldest, most basic programming language, uh, Linux kernel's written in it, mm-hmm. most of the basic libraries. So yeah, it's very possible to write, write your applications in C. My experience is, is if you start in C on Linux, you typically at some point move to C++ so that you can use classes and that it, it kind of helps organize an application. And and that, that's a reasonable option. Um, mm-hmm. there, are, there are tons of libraries available to do about anything. And, and that's really another one of the big advantages of embedded Linux is there, there are so many libraries out there. And... About you know most of the libraries that will run on your desktop system will also run on your embedded Linux system. So Mm -hmm. really being able to leverage all that work and pull that functionality into an embedded application is is really neat.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So that that's there's obviously some downsides to C and C++. There's it's just a little more tedious to write write the code because you have separate uh, source and header files, and you know, years ago we didn't think that was a big thing. But after you've programmed in, in Go or Python or or one of the newer languages, you kind of realize that that's that's not really needed. Mm-hmm. And, and um, probably the other big problem I've seen in C see and C++ programs is um, the lack of memory protection and just general. You, you have to be very disciplined and very careful, otherwise. Um, you know, you'll end up passing a null pointer around and, and something else will try to use it and the, the app will crash. And, mm-hmm. and one of the worst experiences is you you write an application, you test it extensively, and then you start deploying it into the field and it's crashing and you don't know why. And yeah. it's very difficult to instrument C or C++ applications in the field
1: mm-hmm.
0: because, you know, when they crash, they don't have a stack trace in the logs, right? or at least that's not without some work. So you typically have to try to collect a core dump and yeah. then bring that core dump back and run a debugger on it against the actual code that you deployed. So everything has to match up and it requires a good bit of infrastructure and, and expertise to, um, to do all that. So to me, that's a significant de- disadvantage of, of deploying C and C++ in an embedded system, embedded Linux system. Yeah. You know, it's one thing if it crashes on your desktop, but when it's, you know, 500 miles from you and it's crashing and you don't have access, physical access to the device, that's a bad situation.
1: Yeah. I completely agree with you. So, uh, yeah, I think um, C being uh, one of the old, old languages always had that, advantage of having enough infrastructures and then C++ came and you know so there has been a year of languages in 90s when you got like Ruby, Java, Python all coming in like almost in the same year I believe. So um, so what's your fav- favorite language right now if you were to program an embedded system today for Linux for embedded Linux in general?
0: Yeah it, it's hands down uh, Go. So um I, I started with Go probably three or four years ago mm-hmm. and um we've we've done three or so projects in it now and mm-hmm. it's it's been, been an amazing experience. And mm-hmm. I'll just compare it a bit to like Python. One of the big advantages of Go is it has a very efficient and small runtime. So that's the garbage collection and, and other bits or other pieces that make the language run.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And and typically with Go you just embed the the runtime right in the application and it's it's pretty small. Like a, a minimal Go app will be two megabytes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And a large one might might be uh a, a ten megabyte executable or some something on that range. Mm-hmm. So while that while that seems kind of large in the context of an embedded system, if you look at the alternatives like Java or Python, each of those environments requires a significant runtime that also needs to be deployed to the target all, all kind you know there's there's just hundreds and hundreds of files if you de- if you want to deploy python or java and where a go application it's just one file you know one executable has the runtime embedded it's relatively small and it's it's um the deployment experience is is just wonderful with Go because there's no, you know, Mm -hmm. it's one file and you're done.
1: So could you talk about, like, um, if you were to write something, you know, uh, um, in C++ C++ or other, like maybe Python, and then you were to do that in Go, um, what would be your uh, developer experience? Uh, How would you, like, compare and contrast the developer experience? Leaving aside you know, what uh, the final output would be that you will be able to run on the system. Because obviously there Mm -hmm. is uh, a developer who is involved in, you know, doing all the algorithm uh, design coding and everything. So Mm -hmm. what's your take on that one? Like, you know, uh, given the Golang um, ecosystem, could you talk about what are the benefits of uh, Golang uh, and uh, what are like some of your favorite um, uh, pieces as a programmer?
0: One, one thing to, to understand with an embedded system is typically it's a different architecture, uh, namely ARM, mm-hmm. than your desktop PC, which is x86. Mm-hmm. So that means the applications typically need to be cross-compiled if they're compiled for your target architecture. So with, with Java or Python, you would have to cross-compile or, or anyway, a runtime for that for your target embedded architecture. Uh, Go has the building ability to cross-compile to about any hardware or Mm -hmm. or any architecture like x86, MIPS, Mm -hmm. ARM, um, maybe some others as well. And it's as simple as as, um, setting an environment variable named GoArch. So if you set that to ARM or ARM64 and then just run your build, it magically spits out an ARM binary and you copy it over to the target, and it just runs. And if you contrast this with the cross-compile experience in C or C++, you'll you'll if you have any experience at all with that, you know, it truly is amazing. Tooling has made it so simple to do things that in the past were pretty hard.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, Golang in general, I think, um, you know, is kind of thought of as a web programming language, or rather... A language for servers and then, um, you know, that's not it, it is for in general, but that's the impression when you go talk to anyone, they say, yeah, um, I'm doing backend programming. And I write in Golang, right? So some people have started to form that opinion uh, that, uh, you know, this is a language for your uh, more like serverish uh, kind of uh, workload. So. Um, how would you uh, like to um, take this myth on?
0: Yeah, that's that's in- interesting. I guess Go is considered the language of the cloud, like right. you've described, coming out for the cloud. It's written in Go. Right. Uh, years past, it might have been written in Java, but today, you know, any startup that's doing something in the cloud, um, or I should say most of them, you know, they're writing they're writing applications in Go. Mm-hmm. And the the reason Linux, I'll just kind of draw a parallel with the Linux operating system itself. The reason Linux has been so successful in the server space is it's it's very efficient, it's very uh, configurable,
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's very stable, and you know in the server space, if you can minimize your your resource usage a little bit you can save money because if you're scaling to many many servers every little bit you can be more efficient so so the linux kernel has kind of maintained a, a very uh, efficient non-bloated type implementation and you know that may be changing some a little but you know in general so that so that same approach especially if you compare it to like windows or other operating systems that don't have that focus mm-hmm. um, because the linux kernel or the linux kernel and the linux operating system uh, works so well on the server those same attributes make it an excellent fit for embedded systems it's efficient it's reliable it's small mm-hmm. and and i think the same thing applies to go you know go was designed to be very efficient reliable uh, very easy to deploy in the server space or the cloud space and those same attributes make it an excellent fit in the in the embedded linux space and and I'll call you know these might be termed edge devices today would be a kind of a an IoT device kind of at the edge that does some smart things
1: mm-hmm. so that's that's kind of kind of why i think
0: go has turned out to be such a good fit
1: mhm so um so i think that's well put and actually you know that's a good analogy that um I personally haven't thought about, and I think it's a it's a good one because it's more of the characteristics that you're looking for, um, you know, driving into um, the embedded systems rather than specific technologies. So, and it does resemble to a lot uh, from the Linux kernel aspects. So, are there any um, improvements in Go language or in Go compiler or any? Go ecosystem that you, know, you found that could have been done better? I know that it's a fast-paced um, ecosystem that's always upcoming with new technologies or new you know, um, additions to, um, to the ecosystem. But uh, any, any one particular uh, area that uh, comes to your mind that still needs to be addressed?
0: Yeah, what, one thing with Go is it doesn't use the same... Uh, application binary interface is c, so it, it can't easily use C libraries. You know that can be either looked at as an advantage or a disadvantage because the, the minute you start using c c libraries in your go applications uh, you're you're introducing all the problems that are associated
1: mm-hmm.
0: so what's happened in the go space is they've um, or a lot of the functionality has been rewritten. Uh, natively in Go. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So if if you really want to retain the advantages of Go, you need to keep your applications all pure Go. Uh, Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you know, you you start to lose the benefits of Go. And Mm -hmm. and one simple example might be SQLite or SQLite, which is a very Mm -hmm. popular database um, for embedded systems. And it's it's a it's excellent technology. It's used in Android and many applications in the past have used SQLite to store data.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a, it's a C library, so you you know you can use SQLite from Go. There are libraries and bindings. You know your Go app is no longer easy to cross compile. It's no longer easy to deploy, and there's there's dependencies. So that that's kind of the trade-off with Go and I guess in my experience I felt that you can find go implementations of about everything you need. So it, it to me, it's, it's not a showstopper, but you have to, you have to be aware of that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I guess the other thing where go is, is somewhat lacking would be in a, a graphical toolkits. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are bindings to cute and, uh, and other technologies, but, um, you know it's it's not a graphical graphical applications are not not what the go developers prioritize so
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's it's better for headless or iot or applications mm-hmm. like that
1: right so um when we talk about go you know and we we don't talk about rust that would be uh it never happens so does rust have any future in your mind in in embedded <laughs> yeah i i don't I've not done
0: any significant Rust programming, so I'm no expert on Rust.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But I, I believe where Go shines is it—it's a very simple language, and it is very simple to program in. But yet, it's extremely reliable.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: maybe not as reliable as Rust, but it gets you gets you the 98% there, mm-hmm. and, it, and it's a lot less overhead to program in. You know, because it has garbage collection, you know, it takes care of that for you. The channels and and other features are very simple. The type system is easy to use.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Interfaces are, are brilliant, but yet they're simple. So it's to me, it's a much easier language to program in. People can come up to speed on it faster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's if it's you know if you're if you're willing to live with a couple megabytes for the runtime and, and, you know, the binding issues with C libraries and other things. For the average case, I think it's just a little better fit. But, mm-hmm. you know, that may change over time. I I don't, you know, Rust. You know, mm-hmm. It seems like a, in applications that were traditionally done with C and C++, you know, Rust may, may be a better fit there because it would produce the same type of executable output. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? I know you've looked at Rust and have, yeah. have worked with some teams that are using it, so you've kind of been able to watch that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I think um, Rust in general, I think, has been uh, um, relatively new on the horizon. And um, mostly I think what I see it as a a systems language for the future. So, you know, you go somewhere and you hear people saying that, Um, C has a space in the system. C is the system programming language. And um, I think moving forward, we have a solution in Rust, which basically uh, could be that um, language that basically fits in the modern programming paradigm, gives you the benefits of, um, uh, you know, memory safety and and others, um, yet um, gives you same kind of um, executables like you got with C. So I see it being used perhaps, you know, into into what to write bootloaders or kernels in future. Um, Then I think Rust is a compelling alternative that's out there. And um, there may be more, um, you know, ecosystems out there which may be experimenting with it. So, uh, But I think, uh, you know, uh, it does have uh, a place I, uh, and a role to play in upcoming, um, in better Linux space. And I think, um, it'll basically be a bottom up where, you know, people will start producing those small, maybe, uh, bare metal apps that were written in C-based RTOSs and then, uh, maybe some of bootloaders and, uh, and kernels and features of that sort would probably be using Rust. So. Interesting times. I think, um, you know, one of the, the downsides I saw in there was that the compiler is quite slow and uh, uh, error messages are quite cryptic. It reminds me of C++. So, um, well, wow. you know, so nothing um, is always shiny. There always are problems. But um, in the mm-hmm. end, it's also a problem because, you know, if you look in today, I think I read somewhere... And, and that uh, in in embedded space, programmed using C, C or other static languages, you had around 55 to 60% of issues coming were memory related, right? Um, buffer overflows, memory corruption, heap corruption, you name it. So um, so it does solve a existential problem for those systems. And they say they were not powered enough to to have a a you know, garbage collector or uh, a more of a runtime, maybe, you know, it, it does stand uh, a good lucrative option for, for these systems. So that's my take on it. I'm probably expecting much more, like, bootloaders, RTOSs, and perhaps kernels, who knows, you know, in future, future, which will be written in, in, in Rust. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
0: that, that sounds right to me, and I could even think, like, maybe system update components, you know, mm-hmm. Things that you want to be very reliable, but yet um, awesome. it's, not yeah. the, it's not the main application of your system, so you don't want a lot of bloat or yes um,
1: yeah so yeah uh, that
0: yeah, that brings up a thought you know the the go the go compiles compiler is so fast i mean it you know in any app I've worked on it's it's just a few seconds to compile so that that's definitely. Refreshing coming from C++ where, you know, it might take uh, one application I worked on. Oh, I think it was taking minutes or something on a quad core to do a complete rebuild of one application. Mm. And, you know, that, that's significant. That really starts to eat into developer productivity and happiness. So that's, that's another area go really shines.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I totally um, agree with you there. Um, so I think um, having um, you know a proper language and obviously using it as a tool um, is critical at that point, and you know understanding that what your application is going to be you know it it might also weigh in into your choice and of, of yeah. you know, uh, what kind of developers you have access to is also very very important mm-hmm. um, so if you are um kind of like, you know, uh, through these steps. So what are some of your uh, tips on structuring your applications for embedded systems?
0: If you don't mind, I'd like to back up and talk about JavaScript yet, because I think we should...
1: Ma- oh, maybe,
0: yeah, sure. Um, may- maybe we should share a little bit about that, our experiences, mainly because JavaScript is is probably the most popular language in the world right now, you know, more people are program- programming, JavaScript than anything else. And Node.js JS is very popular on the, on the server. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a natural tendency might be, you know, Hey, we know JavaScript. There's lots and lots of programmers that know it. So why don't we write applications on using JavaScript for embedded Linux? So what, what are your thoughts or observations on that?
1: yeah it's uh, interesting. I think I almost forgot about it because you uh, <laughs> i wanted to <laughs> so um one of the um you know uh systems that I was involved in um had a design decisions made to write their uh, application the main application that they the management on the system using JavaScript. And um, sure enough, it's a um, quad core, dual core um, ARM processor, and you know it's almost like an edge device, and it has enough flash in there, so you could uh, basically, you know, have something like JavaScript in there. But um, a, uh, we found it was very difficult to have a static of these systems uh, or the dependencies, so. Essentially, writing it was quick, but when you are building a system for ARM, an embedded system, you're doing most of it, you're doing cross compiling. And from shipping point of view, you want to lock your dependencies and you want to build them instead of fetching them from somewhere. So you, you have reproducibility, right? You want to ship the same version of that dependency module that came in. And it was quite hard because many modules weren't cross compile friendly and um, so in the end what you what like the development team ended up was basically doing native development on that arm um, board mm-hmm. so basically here you have a I, I you know x86 based system from 90s you know um, maybe in terms of power and capacity the system could do and then you are doing development on that. In my opinion, that is a step backward. Right? And of course, you are getting an experience mm-hmm. of a native development, but um, I think your time is uh, spent in dealing with a slow system. And obviously, that system is not meant for development. It is meant for something else. So that was one thing. But more surprisingly, uh, we will it was an embedded system. We were using open embedded to build it and figured out that our image sizes are going into uh, gigabyte plus, right? So I said, well, at a certain point of time, you need to distribute this as a uh, network and, you know, having small image would be good. And um, start to look at it, you would see that I was surprised to see half of the dependencies in the size were because of this application pulling in almost the whole world and it was seen, but there was no easy way for us to remove those dependencies because you know many of them were pulled in um, by they were more indirect dependencies that were pulled in so there was like a, a tree of dependencies that kind of was easily growing out of control. Mm-hmm. So I think um, what my learnings there were that you know, it's easy to start, but it's a slippery slope unless you have tooling and you know um, kind of checks and balances in place, where you are like taking a very hard look at what those dependencies are, the, the ones that are being pulled in, and then you need to have a reproducible build system, so you can basically go 10 years from now and then still build the same app. So, I think those were kind of Things that I found interesting from deployment aspect, it was not as pleasant as I would have expected it to be.
0: I, I have one customer who um, they hired a contractor to build an app for them, and the contractor chose Node.js,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you know they got it all working. But when we went to deploy it on the on the embedded system, one of their well, one of their npm dependencies was pulling in some native code. And once you start digging into these native integrations and these NPM modules, it's it's just a disaster because there's Mm -hmm. no consistency, or at least back when I looked at this problem, there was no consistency in the way people did things. You know, they would just write all these scripts and things that would download various Mm -hmm. bits of libraries and run the C compiler and, and do this and that. And you know it barely works on an x86 system, but the minute you try to cross, so we 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 actually ended up doing the same thing you mentioned. I think we we set up a Raspberry Pi or a BeagleBone with with Debian. Mm-hmm. We we actually built the um, the npm dependencies, copied the binaries you know, to a tarball, and then we actually use those in Open Embedded to to deploy. And yeah. we had a number of other problems. We needed a certain version of NPM and Node, and those only existed in a certain version of Open Embedded, which would only work on certain, which would only build on certain host operating systems, which wasn't what the customer was using. So that led us to yeah. using Docker. So it, you can see the, Thing just snowballed into a huge amount of work once you got to deploying. Right. So that's that's why Go has been such a refreshing experience when I compare it to experiences like that.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I wouldn't recommend JavaScript for you know these kind of environments, and it's better to take that decision early on and then you know basically take a wrong decision and spend the rest of time proving it it's right. And, um, and I think that's kind of your fighting with uh, fighting wrong battles. So um, uh, obviously, you know, it's a it's a good starter as you know, a lot of ecosystem out there, but then know your targets is always what I, you know, is my learnings from it so far.
0: Yes, definitely.
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think. Um, um, So uh, let's talk about a little bit on, you know, the structure in your app and and what are some of the key tips, you know, during development that you would like, uh, that you have used so far uh, for developing your embedded applications for Embedded Linux.
0: Yeah, I'd say the number one thing to to remember is Embedded Linux is is very similar to your desktop Linux or Mm -hmm. your server Linux, at least with with uh, open embedded uh, built distributions, if you get into something like openwrt then that's completely different and very custom mm-hmm. so i I wouldn't say it would apply as much there but with with an Im- image built with open embedded uh, you ha you have a Linux environment that is very similar similar to your desktop environment
1: mm-hmm.
0: application development experience is very similar the tools and and things you have available are very similar. You know, you can SSH into your embedded system. You can uh, run commands just like on your desktop system. What I found myself doing is doing most of my application development on a on a workstation, on a Linux workstation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then doing most of my development there, most of my testing, and then kind of just deploying to the target for a, as kind of a final check.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that works really well because, you know, development is fast on your desktop. You know, there's no deployment step. You just build it and run it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, if there's things like I.O., you can simulate the I.O. Or if it's on a standard bus like RS-45, you can send this to your PC instead of your embedded system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, you know, the graphical libraries are the same. If you're using Qt, you know, so you can run your, graphical app on your desktop system just and it'll look the same. So right. this this is really a huge win for embedded Linux because it improves the developer efficiency so much compared to a completely different environment like an RTOS would be where you have to deploy to the target every time you want to do it do anything.
1: Mm.
0: So I, I guess that's kind of the mindset I, I encourage, you know, kind of plan on the outset for being able to build your app on a pc or for your target mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that'll that'll give you a lot of flexibility and it'll also encourage you to structure it in a clean way so there's not a lot of tangled um, mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah things i think, that are right yeah so um any um kind of um ideas around like unit testing and you know w- would you kind of um uh, also include that in your design early on and you know have uh any um, sort of integrations right from day one when you write it down for your testing, or uh, what have you done there in, in this area?
0: Yeah, I think unit tests are great, especially for algorithms, you know, where you are developing something that's pretty complex. A lot of your development may be more I.O. related, which is not as easy to unit test. You know, you're more just trying to get data from point A to point B. But definitely for algorithms and and complex bits of code, if you unit test it, you will end up with a cleaner. And it's also a lot of fun. I mean, unit tests are just fun. So,
1: yeah, um, yeah. I think um, the other um, areas, essentially, I've seen is that you know um, you are designing your systems for remotely uh, working in a remote scenario, and you know you'll have ways to interact with it and. Now, one of the things that I learned is for like telemetry and and control, basically having a robust uh, logging uh, mechanisms in place is is really helpful. And you know, for if you want to go further, maybe you know include some tracing infrastructure that you can enable either remotely or maybe you know give more a bill that has tracing enabled. Um, as well. So I think that goes a long way from from not only developing uh, when you are in the development phase, but also when you're in the deployment phase. So um, what I've seen is that people have tried to retrofit these ecosystems or these kind of infrastructures into existing frameworks. And that becomes quite a bit um, involved process, unless you have thought about that early on. So you know, having that in mind like simple things like maybe, you know, can I use a debug version of uh malloc? Maybe, you know, just an example, right? Um, can I kind of build that into my application? So, you know, with one switch, I could uh, just debug if there is something wrong going on there. Or maybe I can have a levels of, tra- uh, you know, uh, messages that are coming out of my application. So I could bump that to seven and make my application very chatty. And, and thereby know the, you know, characteristics of the problem. So I think that's one thing I would like to add here from uh, my end, that uh, it's important to put that into the structure.
0: Yeah, that's for sure, because if you're debugging a hard problem, most of the time the way you figure out figure it out is, is through a log, you know, where you can see the what's happening over time, because the, the really hard problems aren't just a logic error, you know, at one place where you can single step through the code and see the problem. It's more of interaction between different parts of the app and how those interactions happen over time. And, and, and really logging or tracing, like you mentioned is really the only way mm-hmm. to effectively debug really hard problems. So yeah, I agree being able to turn on these log levels is a really valuable tool for a complex application.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, so I think um It is kind of, the structure is kind of, I see it as a main thing that you have to put together as a design and then supplement it with certain tools that, you know, you can integrate into your workflow or maybe run them occasionally and but have an easy way to offer them to your uh, workflow. So um, in that, I think one of the the interesting thing is always about uh, code editing. And, you know, there has been... IDEs and whatnot in place and over a period of time, you know, different people use different IDEs or editors and it's similar to, uh, I mentioned earlier about uh, choosing a language, even there are editor wars, you know, and that you will see out there on the internet. So what is uh, your favorite uh, code editor these days and uh, why do you like? Yeah, I'm
0: still using uh, Vim or NeoVim specifically. Mm -hmm. And I, Overall, off, off and on, I've tried things like VS Code or IntelliJ, and I, I like those a lot. They're great tools, and people are doing amazing things with them. And oftentimes, the the level of automation and and you know code, IntelliSense, and all that is is actually better in those tools. But I guess I just kind of keep back coming back to NeoVim or Vim just because it's it's um it's a little faster you know, it, it just kind of feels a little more connected to my fingertips as as I'm editing the code. And mm. to me, that's kind of an important to have that kind of almost connected feeling, you know, that when I, when I do something, I just, it just happens without any delay or any, and I guess the other thing is I, I do a fair amount of server administration. So, you know, it's, it's it's useful to know an editor that's going to be on every Linux system you'll ever touch, right? To be efficient at that.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: how, how about yourself? What what editors are you using these days?
1: Yeah, so uh, I I was a Emacs user a long time ago mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. university, and then um, once I started working on embedded systems, then you know Emacs is not there, so I learned Vi, and um, then you know some variants of. VI were always available. And that was good because I was working on FreeBSD systems, Sun systems, Linux systems, and one thing that was common was VI. So, um, so that was really good to learn VI. And um, I still use VI predominantly to do a lot of my um, administration work, as you mentioned, logging into remote servers and editing code as well, but uh, I have started to like uh, VS Code quite a bit. And, you know, I've had my um, interactions with um, Eclipse and, you know, Shintilla and others over a period of time, uh, Notepad++ and um, a few other editors are there. And I tried Atom for a while as well, but um, I think all these uh, Electron apps, uh, I think VS Code by far is my favorite these days. I keep, uh, Um, finding new and new things, um, you know, that is supported in their marketplace um, that you can download. And I think all the linters and, you know, they just supplement your workflow quite a bit. And I really like that. So, you know, most of the time I'm doing Python. Then, you know, I have all the Python linters in there. Uh, I'm doing CC++. You know, there's a Clang format and everything in place. So it gives a richer set of experience for me, you know, from that aspect. Um, that all those tools are integrated, I really don't have to worry about running them myself. You know, so it just shows up in the editor. It's quite intuitive from that aspect.
0: Yeah, I, it is amazing the how easy it is to to really quickly get a environment set up in VS Code that does everything code formatting, formatting, linting, mm-hmm.
1: um,
0: and and also VS Code has a decent VI emulation. So if if you like the VI,
1: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I think, um, um, what are some other debugging techniques that, um, you know, you, you use in general um, for once, like, you have your structure uh, in place and you are developing, you're using your favorite language and tools in place, what other uh, tools or debugging techniques do you deploy?
0: Yeah, I guess I'm kind of an old-school printf type guy, you know, where I... Mm-hmm. If I need to debug something, I typically just put in a print statements. Mm-hmm. Or if if we want to act a little more sophisticated, we could call that logging. You know, you could have a more a little right. more elaborate logging framework. Yeah. So I, I guess I feel that you know you should you should be able to write code that that most of the time it runs mostly correctly. And and if there's a small amount of debugging need needed, a printf is adequate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I've I rarely felt the need to have debuggers in the in the traditional sense, where you single step through the code,
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: or or something that uh that an RTOS developer would be very used to.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So that that may be a I, I don't know if if most embedded Linux application developers are that way, but you know the fact that the Linux kernel has really never had tight debugging support, you know it's kind of a culture. Right. And I think it's more of a symptom of complex, very complex applications. You, you really can't afford to be single-stepping through an app. You know, the problems you're trying to solve are, are so much bigger than than what you can debug by just looking at a tiny little piece of the code. And, if you know, if you're writing some really tricky code, that's where a unit test comes in unit test it and debug it with a unit test rather than in the context of the whole app.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's far quicker and turnaround than, you know, if you were to do it the whole phase. Yeah. This, this comes to like once Linus Torvald said that um, I need more eyes to look at the code rather than more tools and I'll have less bugs. Mm-hmm. It's actually uh, very true. Um, And I think um, you know it it reminds me once uh, trying to debug a a video app and you know it used uh, Qt WebKit and so there was actually a crash. We said, well, you know, we have GDB server. Why don't we basically try GDB server you know on the on the target And, and locally it was difficult to set because. The device didn't export IP address. And, you know, so doing it over serial, you know, there were other challenges because the device was in a in a different location. So we said, well, why don't we put debugger right in the image and onto the target? Sounds simple. We did that. And uh, we launched it, right? and And the crash happened. But nothing would show up on the target. And it was always busy. It took probably I don't remember how many hours, but probably uh, in the range of two to three hours for it to come back with the stack trace. Because, you know, number one, this is a big application, stack trace is deep. And I think if the tool is coming in your way, right, that, you know, it's giving you a time to, okay, now tool is loading, it's distracting from a developer point of view. So tool should be just, doing the work in the background and not even being, you you don't even have to think about it. So I found that that's not always the case, especially in the embedded space with all these tools, even though they are pretty popular on, you know, native apps. And uh, if you have like really powerful devices, then I think it probably makes sense uh, to look through them. But uh, again, as you mentioned early on, you know, all this will require a lot of infrastructure to either dump the stack traces, bring them over, have your debug info mapped, you know, if you want to do it in a cross environment. Or, you you know, if you want to shift debugger right on the target, then your target has to be able to run and be able to uh, look through it. So so essentially, I think, you know, uh, this is important, but um, we have to know the constraints where um, these tools can fit in.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's one of the huge advantages of Go is if it crashes, you see a stack trace. Mm. So that, you know, those can be captured in logs. You know, there's no infrastructure required. That's just part mm. of the runtime. And, yeah. yeah, historically, the only time I've really ever used GDB is to debug crashes, you
1: mm-hmm. know, and
0: get a stack trace. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I when I talk to people who are just coming into Embedded Linux, you know, the first is I want to be able to remotely debug as in single step through code on my target Mm -hmm. and in my experience I I just really haven't found that as all that necessary or useful you know it it could be handy at times but it's not Mm -hmm. it's not an everyday thing that I'm using all the time so it in my experience it rarely justifies the work to get all that, that working you know if you have a you have a good story where you can develop your apps on a, on a workstation and so on.
1: Yeah. I have a different uh, take on it as well. A lot of times like um, developers, they, they kind of learn by doing so to speak. What they do is they put the code through the debugger and see what debugger is printing. And so they kind of reverse engineer the logic and then try to learn through those. And those are really um, bad practices in my mind because, Many times you create code that is dependent upon the compiler and uh, a certain behavior from the compiler that may not be even um, you know valid in the next version of the same compiler, let alone you know a different compiler. so I think it kind of I've seen that kind of use case as well prop up with you know all these uh, debuggers so I think um, that definitely produces a code uh, that definitely won't be portable. As well, so that is a side effect that you can see in many, many cases as well.
0: yeah, that's a good point
1: right so um, so should I worry about optimizations
0: <laughs> yeah, that's one application we worked on. we did a lot of profiling because you know we were kind of pushing the system right at the edge with handling tons and tons of mapping data mm-hmm. so but for a lot of the other projects I've worked on you know the you know a 500 or a 1 gigahertz microprocessor unit is is quite fast and you know unless you're doing something pretty complex with a lot of data often you have more more than enough computing power so as long as you you know you're a little bit careful about writing your app mm-hmm. and um not have a lot a lot of loops just spinning and things like that you know
1: yeah uh, i think um I would agree with you like in the past and compilers have become smarter too. We have to uh, take that fact also into Mm -hmm. account. So, you know, you had these smarts in the past Like, you know, you go for an interview somewhere and somebody will ask you how efficiently can you uh, flip the bytes, you know, in a word. And, you know, you will do those smarts about, you know, shifting left, shifting right kind of thing. And, they will ask, without using a, a temporary variable, how can you transfer the content of one into another? All those little tricks are now people optimizations in compilers, right? So compiler will figure it out itself, uh, whether that's a Go compiler or Rust or, you know, underneath it's LLVM for Rust. So they are very um, sophisticated compiler optimization infrastructures that are helping you underneath. So you could concentrate on writing the logic. And, and don't worry about those little things. And I know that even today, people are very excited about you know compiler optimizations, and that's good. Uh, but I think you know, spending too much of time, uh, it's that Pareto's principle of 80-20. And I think you have to know where you need to spend your time in terms of... And I think if you put a good logic and good implementation into your algorithm, compiler will do the right thing. And actually, one thing it really does good is if you have simple code, then compiler has better chance to optimize it. Okay. It's as simple as that. So if you write like a is equal to b, and uh, and don't use those nor oper- and ZOR operators to you know shift the content. Instead, you define variables like okay, I move this into that, that into this, like how you would think the end result would be far better than if you came up with a very smart construct and confused the compiler as well. Because mm-hmm. remember, compiler has heuristics, right? So if heuristics fail, then it has to resort to a more conservative approach. And that would be to generate a less optimized code because it didn't really understand what your code construct was. So so I think it's important from that point that um, you know see whether the tool is doing the right thing for you you know, help it by writing good, you know, simple code.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. And I, I guess I should also just mention, if you run into performance problems and you're you're, you're kind of running right at the edge of the capabilities of your hardware, that is a huge time sink, mm. and and consumes a lot a lot of resources and time if you're always kind of right at the performance limits of your hardware. Mm-hmm. So I would say one of the most important things to do when selecting hardware is make sure you have enough performance that you're not bumping up against the limits of your hardware because that's a very difficult situation to deal with.
1: Um, very rightly said.
0: If you can have some margin, some headroom, it, it'll make your project so much easier and so much more pleasant. You know. So.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think um, having all that in place. Uh, I know that, you know, you have worked on various um, frameworks and toolkits. And um, so before we uh, end today's uh, discussion, uh, what's your take on what are the interesting, you know, toolkits and uh, frameworks uh, for embedded Linux uh, application development that are out there or, you know, have been around or are in future?
0: Yeah, I guess for for graphical toolkits, you know, Qt, seems to be one of the, the main ones today. You know, in years past, mm-hmm. we used the GDK toolkit as well, but that, that doesn't seem to be very very popular anymore in an embedded Linux. Mm-hmm. So I guess if, if you're used to those types of toolkits and that's what you want, I you know, Qt seems to be a good way to go. The, the other thing we've done with graphical applications recently in several projects is to actually run a browser full screen on the L C D and then uh, and then write a web application that runs in that browser and talks to a perhaps a go back end also running on the embedded device. Mm-hmm. And that also works pretty well because you can web programming skills are very common and mm-hmm. it also allows you to access the application remotely with a browser on any device. Right. So that's, that's a scenario where more of a web development type mm-hmm. user interface application makes a lot of sense.
1: Right. All right. Um, so I think um, that was our uh, talk for today, um, and uh, thank you. Uh, anything else you would like to cover?
0: Yeah, I, I just had one other thing that crossed my mind as we were, we were talking, and, and that um, setting up your editor to do auto-formatting and linting automatically I learned about auto formatting from from the the Go auto formatter, and mm-hmm. for that I, I just had to have it for all the languages I work in, and it's it's really been a significant change in uh in my code editing experience. So it may not seem very important if you've never tried it, but I, I would strongly encourage people to try auto formatters because it you know it's it's just one more thing the the compiler or the computer can do for you. You know, there's no reason you should have to worry about indenting and you know, is yeah. this formatted right. You just write your code and save it and boom it it auto formats mm-hmm. it. So
1: Yeah, I think it's a very very important point because many times auto format also tells you about the syntax errors that you that compiler will throw at you. So Sure.
0: Right. Yeah. Exactly.
1: So um I, I think I'm I'm a huge fan of these tools and you know um uh, and code linting, and that's where LLVM shines, at least in CC++ area. They have Clang tidy and Clang mm-hmm. format, you know, for if you're writing CC++ uh, code, then you can deploy those tools. Um, but then you could also do other languages. There's a Python linter, you know, uh, pretty much I think all languages have those linters, and I think deploying those is, is pretty neat. And I think it also goes with our psychology, how we see structure visually. And um, I think it's much more uh, productive to have that uh, consistency uh, encoded in the tool itself uh, that you don't have to worry about tabs and spaces. Hey, Python. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well said. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so I think with this, um, I would like to thank you, uh, Cliff, for sharing your thoughts. I think it was uh, very educational for me, um, and I'm sure that listeners would like it too. Likewise. Thank you.
0: Okay. Till next time. Take care.